A couple years ago, my wife and I watched a movie. I don't know if you saw it or heard about it. It's called The Power of One. Did you ever did you hear of that? Um, and, and basically, it was a story of this young man in South Africa, and God used him, or not God, I mean, he was used in incredible ways with apartheid and some of all the issues there. And, and I, I was just, I watched that, I remember watching that movie, and it's, it's probably been 15 years, I don't know how long ago it was. And th- it really showed me what difference one person can make. However, there was a big problem with the title. <laughs> because at the end of the day, we don't have any power in ourselves, do we? And so I, I kind of took that title and reworked it for today's message. God's power through one. We are going to look at what God does with Nehemiah. And, and I think what you'll find, as we work through his story, we are actually talking about your story. So, so we'll be looking at him, but in looking at him, God's spirit wants us to look back at ourselves. Will you let God do that work as we work through this text? Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 down to chapter 2, verse 10. Let me, let me just read, because so often, if, if, if you've got a really good story, you always got to have a problem or an inciting incident that makes you go, uh-oh, don't you? Well, this has a whopping good problem to start it out. Listen to what the text says. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, that would be the 20th year of the king, King Artaxerxes, and this would have been around November, November, okay? Um, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Let me just talk you through a couple things before we look at how Nehemiah responds to all this. Um, Mark, why don't we flip to the next slide? Ah, yes. Does this look at all familiar? Okay. You actually have this slide. And I, I, I'm not going to do a long history lesson. Relax. But I just, just, just to orient you. Do, do you notice? And I don't know. Can you guys see this back there? Say fuzzy. Okay. Well, you have to trust me then. All right. Ezra has come back into the land in 458. It is now 444, 445. So it's about, he's back, been back there, and we haven't heard anything for 12 years. But what we know is this. Ezra had gone back into the land to reform the people. The temple has been built. The walls, though, are, are, had been broken down. Because, because when, when Nebuchadnezzar came in, he, he messed up the gates because if you mess up a gate, anybody can come into the city, can't they? And if you break down walls and put holes in them, people can get through. And so you found throughout the entire 
city, you would find walls with holes in them and you would find gates that were burnt so anybody could come walking in. During this gap time of 12 years, Ezra's still there, but we don't know much about this, but we know from other parts of history. Um, there was another request made from the people back in Jerusalem. And what they did is they actually started rebuilding the walls long before Nehemiah got there. But in the midst of that, Artaxerxes, who is the king of Persia at the time, got a letter from those that opposed the Jews living around Judah in Samaria and other places that said, hey, if you let them fix up all these walls and you let them fix up their gates, this nation is going to rise up against you. And Artaxerxes, and we know this from other history, Artaxerxes is very concerned about Egypt to the south. And, and he's having problems north of Jerusalem in a large area where there's been some rebellion. So he's got all kinds of tension. And when he gets that message, he says to himself, I don't need somebody else creating problems for me. So he writes a letter back and he says, tell them not to touch the wall and not to touch the gates. I want that city left vulnerable. And that's exactly what happens. And we don't know exactly when that happened in that 12-year period of time. But the point is, the city was vulnerable. They had tried to rebuild. And Artaxerxes said, no. So these men came to Nehemiah. Maybe they had been sent there initially so Nehemiah could find out what's going on. We don't know exactly. All we know is they came and Nehemiah said, what's it like right now? And they said, it's terrible. The, the temple's intact, yeah. There's not a lot of people living in the city. The walls are broken down. The gates, anybody can get in and do whatever they want. And Nehemiah thought to himself, it's a very, very difficult time. I want you to think for just a second. We're going to find out later in this chapter that Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the Persian empire, of the Persian king. Now, you may say, well, what's that mean? He just kind of sips the wine before they give it to the guy. True. But wouldn't you say you have to be pretty trusted if that's the case? And we know historically that the cupbearer was considered a significant position in the kingdom. I want you to think about this. When Nehemiah hears this news, it's the news of the Jewish people. We're going to find out that he's burdened by it. That, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. But I, I want you to think, what would Doug Finkbeiner do if, that was, if he was the cupbearer at that time? Would, would it upset me that Jerusalem is broken down? I, of course. I, I probably have relatives there. Of course it would. Would it bother me enough to change my lifestyle? Cupbearer to the king of Persia? That's a pretty cushy job. And I want you to notice what this man does who's in a comfortable position, who could feel concern legitimately from a distance, but he goes way beyond that. 
Do you see the scenario? And here's the other problem. He's cupbearer to the king who has said, don't touch the walls. But that's the very problem. What will he do? Because if he messes up on this, he could lose his life. He could lose his position. He could lose all kinds of things. Do you see this? Do you see the problem? This is a major problem for Nehemiah. What I want you to notice in the text is, is I find there's three responses by Nehemiah. And his responses are insightful because I ask myself, when I look around at the problems in the world and, and places where God's kingdom is not felt and seen and his light is not there, what does that do to me? Like, like what do I do with that? Well, let's see what he does with it. Because one of the things that's really important for you to understand it was not any city for Nehemiah. It was God's city. It was a city where God had made all kinds of promises about what goes on in that city. So he wasn't merely concerned about people. He was. He was concerned about the name of God. Look at what he does. Verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. First thing I find, first response, what kind of a person will God use to further his purposes? Was, was Jerusalem and the city part of God's purpose? You better believe it. So, so what kind of a person does God use? God uses a person who is passionate about God's work and compassionate for God's people. You know what I wrote in my notes here? And it's convicting. Maybe not for you, but it is for me. What makes me cry and what makes me fast? I love food. You can tell. Because this man who had a cush job, who could have comfortably loved from a distance, couldn't he have? You know, he could have said, hey, Ananiah, why don't you write something up and I'll see if we can work something out and you can go back and whatever. Couldn't he have done that? This man is so burdened for what God is burdened about that he can't eat. And all he can do is pray and cry before God. What makes you cry? What makes you fast? My wife or children get real sick. I'm all over it. <laughs> Aren't you? I am all over it. But how about what God wants to accomplish in this world? A person who is passionate about God's work and compassionate for his people. It's both. It was God and people. Secondly, in verses 5 to 11, kind of a person does God use? Does it just mean that I feel bad? No, 
It starts there. It starts in the internal because of what he valued God. So it starts there, but, but it doesn't stop there. Secondly, it is a person who humbly submits the whole problem to God by asking God to provide and be glorified. Listen to the prayer. This is a great prayer. And one of the things I think I told you before, whenever you read a story in scripture, I always think of myself as a cinematographer. So I'm always asking myself, okay, at what point do we get panoramics and at what point do we get kind of zoom-ins? Watch for a zoom-in because it's in the zoom-in that you get some great material. So we have this story going along here and all of a sudden, he doesn't just say he prayed to God. He wants us to hear the prayer. So he zooms into the prayer. And this is, this is the prayer. Verse 5. Then said I, then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you. I'm sorry. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Um, So he starts out by saying this. When you look at his prayer, the first thing he says is, God, I need you. When we have a problem, When we see something in our lives that we know this is not right, this is not what God wants, and it burdens our heart. That's always where it starts. I get that. It must then move to the only one that can resolve the issue. And so secondly, he comes before God and he says, God, if you don't hear, if you don't see, nothing will happen. Haven't you found that time and time again in your own life? There are things that we come up against and we say, God, I can't do a thing. And God alone is the one that intervenes and acts. And before anything else, he's burdened and he's concerned, but he doesn't say, I'm just going to put up my sleeves and I'm going to make the difference. No, 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 no. He starts by falling to his knees, looking up to God and saying, God, It's got to be you. We need you. But he he prays humbly. Look at what he does next. I confess the sins we uh, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commandments, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. You know what? You know what he does here. Do I have to wait to come before God until I'm perfect? I'll never come. I need to come to God repentant. And he comes before God and he says, I am not a perfect man. We, your people, are not perfect. We humbly recognize our sinfulness, our challenges, our failings but we need you. Isn't that a great prayer? Isn't that how we should pray? This is his problem. I can't fix it. God, please 
I don't deserve you to do it. That, that's fair enough. But I ask you to do it in your grace. And then he prays back the scripture to God. This is great. Look at what he does. This is, this is just terrific to me. Look at what he does. In verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Do you see what he's doing? He's praying to God. He's saying, we don't deserve this. You alone can do something. And God, this is your will because this is what you promised and said in your word. And he's looking back to Leviticus and he's looking back to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 30, where, where, where God said, yes, when the nation sins, they will be put into exile. But if they will turn back to me, I will do what only I can do. I will bring them back. He prays the promises of God to God. That's a great way to pray. Does God want his name known in this world, folks? Where you work, where you go to school, in your home, with your extended family. I mean, just come up with list after list of things and pray back to God his promises. So we say, Lord, we want your name to be hallowed. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a great prayer. It's what Jesus tells us to do. It's exactly what Nehemiah does. God, only you can change things. We don't deserve it. We humbly come before you. But we know from your word it's what you want. Then he gets real specific in his prayer. Look at verse 10. Uh, verse 11, I'm sorry. Verse 10 says, They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Again, he's just saying, God, act on your behalf for your glory and for the good of your people. That is always a great way to pray. Now he gets specific, verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he tells us, I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah knows that humanly speaking, it's insurmountable. Wait, Nehemiah. Wait a second, man. Your cupbearer, cushy life. You are going to go to the king who could have you killed and ask him to reverse. Persians aren't supposed to do that anyway. To reverse what he has actually said before. Don't try to rebuild those walls. You're going to go to him and say, um, I would like to go back and rebuild the walls. Do you see the problem? At one level, you could say, that's a fool's prayer. Who would even pray it? A man who believes in the promises of God. A man who believes God, Artaxerxes, is not the sovereign. God is the sovereign of sovereigns, isn't he? He might be the acting king, but you know what? Before he was, God was, and after he's gone, God will be. 
Because God is the sovereign. And Nehemiah specifically then says, God, my burden is so deep that I'm willing to go and ask the king something that will cost me everything. But I believe you can do it. And what I ask you to do is, because the heart of the king is in your hand, I ask you to manipulate it. That's exactly what he's doing. Do you see the gravity? I was reading this passage this week. I, I couldn't help but think about my own life. I don't think I've ever taken a risk like that. Not, not at that... I mean, sometimes I've said, Lord, I'm going to speak to this extended family member and it could really mess up our relationship for an extended period of time. And I just struggle. But honestly, does that really compare to this? Now, it's important. And it's where I live. But I read what Nehemiah is potentially giving up. And he doesn't, he he not only has the heart of God, but he has faith in God. To offer up this prayer. Isn't it marvelous? I don't remember what my next slide is. We, I, I make these slides up and I forget. Like, what else do I put? Oh, okay. This is a good one. We'll leave it up. Okay. Even though, Tim, you probably can't read it back there, right? But we'll, 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 none, we'll not, nonetheless. All right. I'll tell you what it says. <laughs> I know. It, it was a bad slide to make in the first place. I get it. But anyway, all I want you to realize is this. Listen to the first verse of chapter 2. This is really insightful. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. You're saying, what's so insightful about that, Doug? That's four months later. He is burdened and he takes his prayer to God and he says, God... You alone must turn this man. I, I, I must see that you can do that. God, please do that. I'm willing to take the risk. That's what he does. But then he's going to wait four months till he makes his request. That, that's, that's the only reason I put that up there, Tim. So you can see there's, there's a four-month period of time from the time he heard the problem till he actually makes the request. I find that to be interesting to me. And what I find is this, a third principle. So, at the core, the kind of people God uses, a person who is passionate about God's work. A person who humbly brings the whole issue to God in prayer. And thirdly, a person who acts wisely and courageously by God's strength. Why does he wait four months? Is he crippled in fear for four months? Like, no, maybe, ah, no, forget it. I mean, is that what's going on? I don't think so at all. I think he is prayerfully waiting for just the right time to act. Because when he does act, he knows exactly what he wants. He'll tell the king, bing, 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 bing. But the key thing is this. When you read the last verse, in, 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 uh, the last section here in chapter one, his prayer is about, favor of the king. And then all the way through chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, you will see the word please, 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 again and again. If it pleased the king, and it pleased the king, if it pleased the king, and it pleased the king. It's all the way through. You know why? Because God is at work. 
He feels the burden. He takes it to God. And then he wisely and courageously shares it with the king. Look at what happens. So in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, right? That's what a cupbearer does. Make sure it's okay, right? I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. If you would have asked me a couple months ago, why do you think Nehemiah was afraid? You know what I think I would have told you? Because I've always heard it preached this way. I think I would have told you, well, cupbearers are always supposed to be happy, happy when you stand before the king. And on this particular day, he forgot to be happy, happy because he was burdened, burdened. And the king saw it. And then he thought, oh no, I could lose my life because you're supposed to be happy, happy. And here I am and I'm sad, so I'm afraid. But I don't think that's what's going on here at all. Because of his response and how he handles this. You know why I think he's afraid? Not because he's not happy, happy and he got caught off guard. Because he knows the gravity of the moment. I have been prayerfully before God asking for the right moment. And I think it's now. And I think he chose when he stood before the king. I think he chose to have a sad face. I don't think that was just something that just kind of happened. And he knew this was God's timing. He stepped out. The king saw it. The king asked him about it. And the reason he's afraid because he's saying my whole life is going to be determined by what happens in the next three minutes. That's why I think he was afraid. King said, why are you sad? He's allowed it to come out. And he says this. I said to the king, may the king live forever. You always say that to a king. May the king live forever. It's a, it's a good thing to say before a king. All right. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? I love this. Look at this. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. Don't you love that? Have you ever had those moments? Like it's that critical moment and someone says, so what do you want? Oh God, please. Oh God, this is it. Please, I'll be right there. You know what I mean? Like you're racing the prayer in your head, but it's only about three seconds. But you are praying like crazy. It's exactly what this guy's done. He's been praying like nonstop for four months. That moment comes, he's afraid. He wisely says, by God's grace, I think this is the time. He steps out. He says it. And the king says, well, so what do you want? Oh, God, here we go. Right? Can you see it? Look at what happens. I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Oh, I'd love to know. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Nehemiah, after you said that, what were you thinking? 
Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. He knew it was okay because when the king said, okay, so how long do you think you'll be? He said, and I don't know exactly what he told him. What I do know from the chart is he was actually there 12 years. That's a long time to be away from the king. And I don't know if he told him all that right now. Maybe he said, just as long as it'll take and I'll get back to you. I don't know what he said exactly. But in that moment, the king says, what do you want? How long will you be gone? He tells him, and the king said, you can go. Do you know how hard that would be to do with a Persian king? You are asking him to reverse what he had said earlier about that city. Do you realize that? It's, it's you know, the, the law, the Medes and Persians. You're not supposed to do that kind of thing. It's an amazing kind of a thing that this has happened. But he's not done. He had thought this whole thing. Because he is not only stepping out courageously. He is stepping out wisely. Look at what he does next. Because I don't know about you or me, but I think if, if, if the king told me that much, I would say, well, thanks, king. And I'd be like, all right, that's enough. But uh, no, no, no. He wants a little bit more. Look at what he does. I also said to him, uh, if it pleases the king, see that word again? If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter while we're at it. <laughs> may I also have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal parks, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which are by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. So, I'm going back. Thank you. I would like safe travels there, number one. And secondly, I need material. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? This guy's like all prepared. So he's not just crazy saying, can I go? Yeah, you can go. Fine. No, okay. Well, just while we're on the topic. <laughs> yes, for some more of these things. It's marvelous. And look at how God works. I love this. I love this. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Isn't that just like God? He left that one out. He's wise. I'm going to need material and safety and all that. And king said, fine, you got it all. And by the way, take some of my soldiers with you. Go. It's only because of the good hand of God. Are there, are there strongholds of evil in this area of New Jersey? In your neighborhood? In the world? Are there things that God wants to do through us? You. You say, I, I, I'm not a cupbearer. I teach. I'm a businessman. I'm a housewife with three young kids. You're the kind of people God wants to use. 
if you know Christ. I love that passage over in 2 Corinthians 4. You know where Paul says, God wants to show his power through earthen vessels. Can I translate that into modern English? God loves to use Skippy peanut butter jars. Do you know that? So what you see on the outside is a Skippy peanut butter jar, but it's the power of God working in there. So nobody comes away and say, I mean, nobody comes to my house. They may come to our house and say, that's a beautiful vase. Nobody says, if I have something by the garbage can, like Skippy peanut butter jar, nobody says, hey, think about it. That is a beautiful Skippy peanut butter jar. <laughs> nobody. They're waiting to chuck that thing out. And God says, I do my best work with Skippy peanut butter jars. If my people will be burdened about what I'm burdened about. Take that burden to God. The only one that can change the situation anyway. We all have people we love who are away from Christ or don't know Christ. I can't, I can't make it happen. Can you? Yeah, you could you just do all kinds, but I can pray. I can come to the one who can. I can tell him I don't deserve that you do much because it's just Doug. But it's a redeemed Doug that you have bought by the blood of your son. And I'm not asking for something for me. I'm asking that your will will be done through me. I only ask that you give me courage and wisdom to step out. Would you be willing to do that this week? This month? This year? Ask God to burden you with what burdens him. Take it back to him. Let him so work that he empowers you with wisdom and courage and you step out. We could not have a service and have everybody share testimonies if we all do that this year, would we? I don't even know what it all would mean, but I know it would be very good for his glory. So I ask you to make that commitment. I think I have one more slide there somewhere. Do I? No, forget. Oh, 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 I should tell you this. I I should have told you this earlier. Sorry. Real sorry. Tim, that's his Susa over there on on the right side. He's got to get from Susa all the way to Jerusalem. It would have taken him two to three months to get there. I don't know. We hop on planes and we just, we arrive. This guy, this guy is ready to say 12 years, cupbearer, authority, power, forget. I'm going to go get back into a situation where there's going to be opposition and people who are a pain in the neck and problems that I don't know the solutions to and trying to be a governor when I've never been a governor before. And I'm going to travel three months till I even get there to start doing this stuff. But he's willing. If, if you feel God's burden and take it to him so that he will empower you wisely and courageously to step out. 
It will take sacrifice. Probably not as much as this, but it will take sacrifice. But what happens eternally for the kingdom of God, only heaven itself will reveal. I just ask you, brothers and sisters, if you know Christ, let that be your prayer this year. And don't be surprised what God does. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we are so thankful for the stories you have given us in Scripture. Not of perfect men and perfect women, but of faithful men and women. Skippy peanut butter jars. People who feel what you feel, trust in you, and step out in faith. Father, I don't know what that means for each one of us. It may be sharing a word with a family member from somebody in here who's never done it before. I don't know. It may be, Lord, that you will burden somebody in this group to do what Maria's done and go on to Cambodia and maybe they'll go somewhere half around the world because they want to further the kingdom. I don't know. Would you open our hearts to be used of you? In Christ's name I pray. Amen.